turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, we'll also look in a moment at a passage in Acts chapter 4 for a sermon entitled, The Only Reason. The Only Reason. English playwright Alan Bennett wrote a famous play about an equally famous madness of a well-known king. You see, in the 18th and 19th centuries, and England has four kings in succession, all named George. And the third of them, George III, suffered from a fair amount of, well, mental illness during his reign. So Bennett called his play, The Madness of George III. Roman numeral, Roman numeral, Roman numeral. The Madness of George III. Well, it came time to make a movie out of the play. And the movie makers didn't like the title. They said American audiences are used to seeing sequels like Spider-Man 2 or Superman 3. And if we name this movie, The Madness of George 3, then the American audiences will think they've missed The Madness of George 1 and The Madness of George 2. And so why waste your time going to see The Madness of George 3? And so they changed the title to simply The Madness of George. The opening paragraph in Acts declares that unlike Bennett's play and film, Acts is indeed a sequel. There has been a previous book. There has been an earlier movie called Luke. And now Acts is written by Luke as the second deeds and works of Jesus. Well, let's look at Chapter 1, verse 1. It even sort of introduces a proposed title, does it not? The first account I compose, meaning Acts is now the second account, Theophilus, lover of God, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So this is the second. This is the deeds and teachings of King Jesus II. Not that there are two King Jesuses. There's the one and only Jesus, but this is the sequel to the book of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard of me. John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is this the time? You're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is it now? Is this the time? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight. They've gathered around their risen Lord. What now? 
Jesus has overcome the grave. He's with them for 40 days, teaching them again about the kingdom of God. So what does all this mean? Lord, they ask in verse 6, is it now the time that you're restoring Israel? You see, the prophets had taught Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel that there would be a restoration of the land back to Israel, and Israel would be unhindered by foreign powers, and they would be powerful again as God's people on God's land. So the disciples asked a question that was appropriate for any Jew to ask about a Messiah. Is this the time? Is this the time of Hosea and Joel and Jeremiah? Is this the day? What they're asking is this. And this is where scripture takes us. Is this the ultimate day where heaven invades earth and they become one? And the power of restoration that began in the empty tomb of Jesus as it restores all creation back to paradise. Is this the time? Is this the day? They ask. Well, he told them, you don't worry about the times or the epochs, but I have a job for you to do until that time. First thing I want you to see this morning is this. The church has a clear call and purpose. The church has a clear call and purpose. Story circulates at Oliver Wendell Holmes American jurist found himself on a train and the conductor announced he was coming through to collect the tickets from the passengers. And when they got to Oliver Wendell Holmes, he, he patted and he couldn't find his ticket. That always happens to me. You, you put it, it disappears. He's patting, he can't find it. He gets nervous. I'm so sorry, he said. He starts looking through his briefcase. The, well, the conductor says, we know who you are, Mr. Holmes. We're not worried about your ticket. And he just keeps patting down. He is no comfort, not comforted by the assurance of the conductor. And the conductor said, I'm going to tell you one more time, Mr. Holmes. We're not concerned about your ticket. We know who you are. And Mr. Holmes replied, young man, it's not a, a matter of trust, but a matter of direction. I do not know where I'm going on this train. <laughs> the church knows where she's going. The church has a clear purpose. No one needs to ponder why we exist or why we have gathered today. And by the way, your children did so well. Well, Matthew puts it this way. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. It's clear enough. Our commission, our purpose is to build the kingdom of God both bigger and deeper. We build it bigger by evangelism, introducing folks to the hope of the empty tomb of Jesus. We build it deeper by discipleship, focusing in so many different small groups throughout the week, and even here following this service, discipling people in the name of Jesus. We gather every time we gather to teach folks the things that Jesus said and taught. It's why we're here. But you know, congregation, a mission is a fragile thing. We need the continual reminding and the continual attention so we won't get off track, so we won't miss the mark. A mission statement can become blurred and obscure. 
Well, in Atlanta, there once was a chicken place called the Church of God Grill. The Church of God Grill. And someone was visiting Atlanta, was looking for a place to eat nearby, and saw the Church of God Grill, just out of curiosity, called up and said, now, what is this Church of God Grill? Why do you call yourself the Church of God Grill? It's a chicken house. Why do you call yourself the Church of God Grill? They said, well, we had a little mission down here, a little church, and to raise money for the mission, we started selling chicken out the side door after church was over, and well, the chicken was good, and it it was very popular, and we had more and more demands on chicken, and so we did less and less church through the months, and well, it just kept on, and we couldn't do both church and chicken, so we just picked chicken, and so we left the name so people could identify us as the Church of God Grill. Well, the chicken remained, must have been tasty, killed the church, but the church died. Now, we're not likely to to sell chicken out the side door anytime soon here. I'm not worried about that. But we have to be careful not to lose our priorities. We can, in subtle ways, if we're not careful, lose our focus. The church is the only people instituted by Christ to preach the cross and the power of the resurrection. The church is the only institution empowered by the crucified and resurrected Christ to preach and tell his story. Now, we have a lot of programming around here, a lot of activities Uh, Since I've been here, we've had everything from driver's education to fly fishing to internet surfing. We have a basketball league and a soccer team. We teach English to people as a second language to hundreds of folks every week. We watch children so mothers can have a day out. We watch kids so parents can have a night out. We have summer fun days and weightlifting programming and fine arts that features the best musical talent in the city. We have ladies that sew. We have men that have a shower and wash trailer so when there's a natural disaster first baptist is on the scene to help the first responders we are a very busy people we give away clothes and food and cars and bikes and computers we have support groups through the years for people going through divorce or caring for their aging parents or going through grief you name it we've tried it it's been done around here there's nothing left undone but in all the busyness We have to be reminded that we're not primarily here to sell chicken dinners or teach people artistic painting, and we've done that. We're here to win people to Jesus Christ and to disciple them in his footsteps. Everyone who steps on the property of First Baptist Church in a kind and gentle way ought to at some time be confronted with the story of Jesus and the power of the gospel of conversion. The church is here for only one reason. Calvin Miller, in his book, A View from the Fields, tells about a little old lady who was touring the Westminster Abbey. And, well, she wasn't all that impressed with the beautiful architecture. I've been there, I was, but she wasn't all that impressed with the beautiful architecture. And 
When they came to all the famous tombs of people who had been buried there, uh, she didn't know any of the names. It didn't make any difference to her. That those names didn't impress her, those old European names. And, well, the fresh-cut flowers that are there for the tour, that didn't do anything for her. So it got to the end of the tour of Westminster Abbey. It was a Q&A period. And, well, they said, does anybody have any questions? And she had the gall to raise her hand, and she said, well, I got one question. Has anybody been saved around here lately? It was generally thought to be asked in poor taste, most likely because the answer was no, they have not. A church can lose its way. His command for us is to go. Most of the sharing of Christ that occurs by First Baptist Church doesn't occur right here. We empower you to go. Go and make disciples. We come here to experience worship and to experience part of being the people of God, part of God's greatest movement, the church. But then we go out to proclaim. We go out to proclaim the resurrection power. On May the 16th, 1998, Christopher Searcy died. And his death left a lot of people shaking their heads and some even shaking their fists. In the early evening that Saturday, Chris was playing pickup basketball with some of his friends at the park. The game was tragically terminated when the gang members jumped out of a car and put two bullets in Christopher Searcy's chest, 15-year-old boy. His friends picked him up and raced him 100 yards together to Chicago Ravenswood Hospital. But he was just losing too much blood. And they sat him down 35 feet from the emergency room door. And they dashed inside knowing the emergency room personnel would dash outside to pick him up and carry him in. The hospital said no. It's against our policy to treat anyone that is not within our doors. We cannot. You'll have to call 911. They'll pick him up and bring him here, and then we'll treat him. Well, the friends of Christopher Searcy begged them, make an exception. He's dying. He was just shot. The neighbors begged. Even a police officer, James Mara, begged, please come and get this young man. They waited and waited, and when they could wait no more, the policeman did what he was taught not to do to pick up a seriously injured person. He got a wheelchair, threw the boy in the wheelchair, and rushed him in. About an hour later, Christopher Searcy died from a bullet wound, perforated aorta. John Blair, the present CEO of the Ravenswood Hospital, initially stood by his action of his employees and said that's what they were taught to do. They were smoking right there beside the dying boy, but would not help him because he was not yet in the building. They later changed the policy you see, such scenarios are not limited to bureaucratic hospital policies. As a church, we are surrounded in this city by the mortally wounded from the smoking barrel of our adversary, and it cannot be an unwritten policy that we cannot go. We are called to gather and then to scatter. We are called to go and make disciples. We have a purpose. Well, secondly, not only do we have a purpose, we have a passion. Now I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and the apostles are preaching. They get arrested. They get in trouble. They are warned to stop preaching. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Not only a, a, a purpose, but also a passion. As they were speaking to the people, 
The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's what the church is to do, to proclaim in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of believers came to be about 5,000. Look at 421. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They began to speak the word of God with boldness. What a change for Peter, who had earlier denied his master three times. Even during a cursing tirade, he had said, I don't even know that man, Jesus. But now, despite the direct threat from the authorities. Despite that threat, he says, whatever you have to say, you say, but whatever we have to say in Christ, we will say. We will preach the word of God with boldness and passion. If I were to have the ushers pass out blank sheets of paper this morning, there's a pen, a First Baptist pen there in your pew rack. And I would ask you this morning to write down the names of a half dozen people that you know need a relationship with Christ, that you're building a relationship with them, and you're praying for them daily to profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Could you write down a half dozen names? You have a passion to teach people about the power of the resurrection. Could you write down three names if you couldn't write down six? Could you this morning write down the single name of a person who needs the hope of Christ Jesus and you feel empowered by the Holy Spirit, you have a passion for his or her soul and you are praying for them and sharing with them gently but yet directly and loving them? Or would you have a blank sheet of paper this morning? Have we lost the passion for the lost. You see, not only have a purpose, we're to have a passion. We are not to be passive as a church. On May the 27th, 1998, Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years in prison for being passive. A lot of you remember this. Fortier was a key witness for testimony which convicted Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols in the Oklahoma City bombing. Fortier knew of the extensive plans of McVeigh and Nichols, and he failed to warn authorities. He had been their old army buddy back in the day. In fact, he was there in a courtroom right beside where the federal building once stood. And Fortier begged for the forgiveness of the families, 168 deaths, 19 children, 500 injuries on top of that, thousands of lives changed on April the 19th, 1995, upon reflection, Fortier said, 
I thought McVeigh's plans would never bear fruit, but I was wrong. Sometimes at night I dream of a different ending. Sometimes I dream that I went to the authorities and I became a hero and I stopped the bombing and saved the lives, but I did not. So he was convicted for passivity, for being disengaged and not saving those lives. Jesus himself condemned the servant who was passive, the one who simply dug the hole and put his gifts in the hole and covered it up. And Jesus says, I expected you to multiply. The least you could have done was to grow the gifts I'd given to you. Michael Fortier failed to speak up and hundreds of lives were shattered. If we remain silent as a church, even more eternal destruction will occur. Will we be silent? Have we lost our passion? I think about Matthew. When Jesus invites him to come and follow him, you remember what Matthew does? He closes the tax books, but he has a party at his house that night, invites all of his tax-gathering friends, the publicans, the sinners, and Jesus goes and eats with them and, and dines with them, parties with them. I imagine Matthew said something like this. He knew everything about me. He changed my life, and he can change your life too. He's the most remarkable man I've ever met. I don't want to hoard him for myself. He's given me hope, and I want my friends to have hope too. Do we have a passion for the lost? I think about Luke 19, 41, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he begins to weep. Now, Jesus only weeps three times in Scripture. Can you name them? He weeps at Lazarus' tomb. He weeps in the Garden of Gethsemane when he wants the cup, the cross, to pass over. To pass over. And, and yet he, he weeps here this third time as he's approaching Jerusalem. He's not weeping because of political forces. He's not weeping because he's a failed leader. He's weeping because he knows the sins of Israel have filled the cup and the wrath of God is sure and they are lost. And he weeps over his people. You know, the word lost must be the saddest word in the English language. Even if I see on a telephone pole a lost dog, it gives me bad feelings. I wish the, the dog had back at his house and look for the dog or, or even a cat. And heaven forbid a child is lost on a milk carton. Or we can lose our reputations or we can lose our fortunes. We can lose our health. But the greatest loss of all is to lose our souls. Jesus said, what profit does it make for a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, what chance, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? We're to have a purpose. We know our purpose. Our kids knew our purpose. We're to have a passion with that purpose. Thirdly, we, we have power. Look at 1.8. Go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. For you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We shall have power. We have the essential resource of God's Holy Spirit. The job of the Holy Spirit is convict men and women of their sin and their need for a Savior. In Acts 4, 8, it said, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, the Spirit does his work. 
No, in Scripture, no matter who plants the seed of the gospel and no matter who waters the seed of the gospel, it is always God that gives the increase. You know, I, I don't worry about results. I worry about faithfulness. You're not responsible for where someone says yes or no to Jesus. That's their own decision. You are responsible for planting the seed or watering seed is already planted. Numbers don't matter. We're not counting heads. We're not notching guns. It makes no difference. What makes a difference is, are we faithful? The results are up to the Spirit of God and the person being convicted by the Spirit of God. But it's our duty to plant the seed, to water the seed. And if God so chooses, God will give the results. Here's a fourth and final thing I want you to see. That is the perimeter. We have a purpose we're to have passion. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't witness on our own. You can't lead anybody to Jesus. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. What is the perimeter? Notice what he says in 1.8. You begin in Judea. Begin in Jerusalem. That's Amarillo. Then to Judea. That's West Texas. And then Samaria. That's our whole state. And then the uttermost part, the remotest part of the earth, the whole earth. Our responsibility as a First Baptist Church of Amarillo is to lead all men and women and children everywhere to Jesus. We start here in Amarillo. We take, before the pandemic and after the pandemic, we take mission trips. We even had some go this summer. All over the world, we take trips in our own state. Yes, we go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Through your offering and your tithe, we support uh, thousands of missionaries in more than a hundred countries. We start at home, but we must have our focus on the entire world. Here's a story of an executive headhunter, the kind of guy that finds CEOs for large corporations. He goes around, he gets to know someone, spends a lot of time with them, He's looking for just the right man or woman to lead a corporation, to be president, to be CEO. Invest a lot of time in that because it makes all the difference in the world. He's a corporate headhunter. He says, I, I do it this way. I go and spend a lot of time with them, and then I get them to relax. Well, you know, he said, I'll, I'll purposely start taking off my jacket. Then I'll loosen up my tie. And then somewhere in the conversation, I'll put my feet up on the guy's desk. I'm really getting him to relax. I'm disarming him so he gets comfortable with me. I'm setting him up, says the headhunter. So imagine the headhunter. He takes the coat off, loosens the tie, puts his feet up, talks sports and everything but about executive leadership of the corporation. I said, at some moment, when I can notice that the guy or gal are really being themselves, at some moment during the interview, I lean forward for the kill and I look in the eye and I say, what is your purpose in life? He says, usually silence, crickets. He said, you'd be surprised these men and women who can lead worldwide corporations have no notion of purpose in their life. He waits for that moment, makes the kill. What is your purpose in life? And getting the job or not getting the job depends on if they have clarity of calling and purpose. 
As a headhunter tells the story, he says, on one particular occasion, he had his jacket off, he had his tie loose, had the guy laughing, talking about football, and just a moment he leaned forward, looked him eye to eye, and said, what is your purpose? He said, my purpose is to go to heaven and to take as many people as I can with me, without a blink. My purpose is to go to heaven and to take as many people as I can with me. On this occasion, it was a headhunter who was stunned silent and not the potential CEO. Individually, do you have a purpose, a passion, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the perimeter to reach the world? And as a church family, do we understand the mission, the last words, last words are important. Right before Jesus goes, he says, you will receive power. And you, the church, and only the church, you will be my witnesses. Start right here in Jerusalem, but I, I have a plan for you to reach the whole world. With the power of the crucifixion and the glory of the resurrection. To go to heaven and to take as many people with us as we can, it is the only reason, the sole solitary purpose of First Baptist Church. Let us pray. Oh God, maybe there here's some, some here this morning who Today is her day or his day to profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe someone's already shared with them the gospel. They have that conviction. They know fully well they need to come forward and declare Christ as Lord and follow in the weeks ahead in baptism. Maybe there are others who need to come forward and be a part of this church that knows her purpose and will pursue it with a passion to the whole world. However you would call us this morning, O oh God, may we respond. 